and welcome back to Historical for another trip through words and time. Today we're going back to an unknown author, in an unknown time, and a mostly unknown place, to explore the murky roots of the tale of Igor's campaign. Now, if you had a high school history education that in any way resembled mine, you might have noticed something odd at some point. You might have noticed that Russia apparently invented itself about two weeks before their revolution, moved Planetary House three days after the end of the Cold War, and then just came back in time to get Donald Trump into trouble. Now, if the history textbooks didn't say this outright, they heavily implied it. They certainly did nothing to expand upon the many centuries of fascinating Russian history that extends just as far back as it does anywhere else. Never mind trying to correct the idea that many of us had in the 90s of a decrepit, reincarnated Rasputin with a way with small talking bats. So that's what we're here for today. And just as an aside, we will be circling back to Rasputin. I watched Disney's Anastasia until my parents actually threw the cassette away and then lied about it, creating a lifetime of difficulty trusting adults, so we really can't have it any other way. Also, I'm a big fan of bells, especially the tolling kind. So if you know those words, go ahead and drop them on Instagram. There might be a prize. It won't be a bat. Anyway, the words we're focusing on today are much older than Rasputin, even the original non-animated version. The tale of Igor's campaign is an anonymous epic poem. Epic poem, think of Gilgamesh, that's another epic poem that we've done. And it's originally written in the Old East Slavic language. This is the language that eventually gives rise to the Belarusian, Russian and Ukrainian languages, amongst a number of other languages that I also can't speak. Unfortunately, we don't know who the author was, or even exactly when it was written. But hang on, you're thinking, don't we have all these fancy new ways of testing paper and matching it to one specific kind of tree that only grows between March and June on one particular street in one particular town? Yes and no. Dating can't always get that specific, that's CSI, and also we don't have the original anymore even if we wanted to try. In fact, the story of the original document is probably worthy of an epic poem itself, but sadly this podcast isn't in the business of writing epics, only minis. So in short version, the original copy of the poem was found by Count Alexei Musin Pushkin when he bought a collection of old documents from a local monastery in the late 1700s. Sidebar for everyone, remember that for several hundred years, monasteries were one of the very few places that had large collection of books, And monks were among the very few people who had the time and leisure, and probably patience, to copy old texts out by hand to preserve them. So Count Musin Pushkin gets his hands on a stack of documents that he thinks dates back to around the 16th century. He's a bit of a nerd. He'd probably have been really into Game of Thrones and the Wheel of Time. So naturally, he's very excited by his haul. Imagine those very odd summer skincare haul vlogs that you see on YouTube and then multiply the level of excitement by a factor of seven. So it really blows his socks off when he discovers the manuscript for a poem inside this collection that has the script and style, not to mention the smell, of something much older. He realizes that he is far too overexcited to translate it correctly himself, so he hires a few other scholars and they proceed to translate it incorrectly together. They published it anyway, just going to show that the media cared just as little for accuracy then as it does now. Their second attempt is a bit better, though. 
So they tie a nice big bow on it and send it off to Catherine the Great. I'll just say it here because I'm not going to waste an entire episode on this. Catherine the Great definitely had time to read this because the rumours about the horse are completely untrue. And thank goodness they did send it off to her because a few years later, Count Nusen Pushkin's entire collection went up in smoke in the Great Moscow Fire of 1812, and the original was lost forever. All the translations you see today tend to be a mashup of that first edition published in 1800, and then the version colloquially referred to as the Catherine copy. Nabokov, the wonderful Russian-American novelist, translated it into English in 1960, but of course all these later versions still contain the discrepancies of the original translation. Now, the poem tells the story of a failed raid of Prince Igor, which is unlucky for him because apparently he was quite remarkably successful in all of his other military pursuits. But this mysterious poet, for reasons known only to him or her, chose to immortalise this defeat rather than a victory. Maybe he was secretly on the other side. Anyway, the poem tells of how in April 1185, Prince Igor of Novgorod Severeski sets out to attack an old enemy, the nomadic Polovetsians. If you're thinking that that date, April 1185, seems maybe a little bit too specific to be likely, you are right, or you would be. But fortunately for us, Prince Igor saw the well-recorded solar eclipse, which we know happened on May the 1st. This is a little bit less fortunate for him, though, because everyone else saw it too. Solar eclipses are famously quite hard to miss, unless you're well indoors or napping. Two things medieval armies did very little of. So Prince Igor's army and the three other princes who had joined him were convinced that this was a terrible omen and very keen to heed it. Prince Igor, however, managed to convince them to keep going. When scouts returned with the news that it would be impossible to pull off a sneak attack, the campaigners were left with two options. Attack at once or turn back. Igor convinced everyone that turning back would be a disgrace worse than death. So they made their attack, and they won. Igor then suggested that they take the spoils and return home immediately. Sviatoslav, another prince, was worried that his horses were tired. Normally, that's a sentiment I would thoroughly get behind. But even I, who have been known to carry a full-grown beagle to his bed, have to admit that in this case, it was probably a mistake. The Polovetsians called for aid in the night, and Prince Igor and company woke up completely surrounded. Only 15 men managed to get back to Russia, and Igor and the other princes were captured. But Igor has no intention of staying a captive, and he plots his escape. I say plots. He waits until dark and then apparently just opens the tent flap and walks out. Now this bit of the poem is quite lovely, even though it doesn't paint the guards in a great light, so here's a little bit of it. The glow of the sunset had faded. Igor sleeps. Igor keeps his vigil. Igor's thoughts cross the prairie from the great river Don to the small river Donets. Beyond the river, Ovlo whistles, having caught a horse. He warns the prince. Prince Igor will not remain a prisoner. The earth rumbled, the grass rustled, and the cumin tents began to stir. Now, in the guard's defence... Eagle does wait until they start playing a game, thereby distracting them and, I think we can all agree, simultaneously cursing board games as the destroyer of all friendships for the rest of time. Eagle manages to make it back home, and then he raises ransom money for all of the other captive princes. 
He also makes his walls a little higher, which seems sensible. So apart from proving that A, you should always make backups, and B, you should never go to work when the sun's down, why is the story important? Well, for one thing, it's pretty. It's a beautiful poem. And pretty language is cool. Ancient pretty language is even more cool. But don't use it as pickup lines unless you really know what you're doing. More importantly, the tale of Igor's campaign, or the lay of the host of Igor in some translations, gives us a very rare insight into pre-Christian Slavic culture and language, into Russian paganism and the socio-political landscape of the time. It also influenced a number of later Russian writers and became an opera that is still considered one of the great classics of Russian theatre. And there's still an ongoing debate about the original. Was it written in 1185 or shortly afterwards? Or did it start as a song or an oral poem and continue like that, maybe changing with each retelling and each new storyteller until it was eventually written down in the late 14th or early 15th century in that manuscript found by the Count? This is probably one of those things that we'll never really know, but people will continue arguing about it for another few centuries. If that worries you, don't let it. Historians and writers love a good disagreement. Thank you for joining this episode of Historical. If you enjoyed yourself, please head over to your streaming platform of choice, subscribe so that you never miss another episode, and leave us a rating and review so that we can continue to tell cool stories. You can also come and find us on Instagram and Twitter at historical underscore podcast and join the Facebook group, which is an excellent place to tell us which words you'd like to hear next. Join us again for more words that shape the world every Tuesday.